so glad to be with you here. This episode is with Vanessa Potter. She's joining from England, and she has a fascinating story where she was running around as a TV producer and a mother, and suddenly, out of nowhere, she began losing her sight, and she lost it very quickly. And her story is about that journey and the healing that came from within. You know, she really, she makes the point that she came, she came to the realization that the healing was on her and there wasn't anybody outside of her that was going to be able to help her. So it's a really inspiring, beautiful story, empowering. Um, and, and once she was healed, then she was so interested in what was going on with the brain um, particularly with regard to meditation. So she worked with researchers to develop this amazing art exhibit that combined art and science to be able to show people what was happening in their minds, um, in their brains as they meditated. And it was so powerful because when you can actually get that real-time feedback, you can. it's not just about, you know, oh, I feel calm or I feel peace. Um, so often that can be so powerful to be able to see with your own eyes what is actually happening. Having that biofeedback can be really powerful. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I would love to hear from you. You can email me at themeditationconversation.com. You can find me on Instagram at Kara underscore Goodwin underscore meditation. I'm on Facebook, uh, Kara Goodwin Meditation. And check out my website. I've got resources on there. Uh, my website is karagoodwin.com. You can get uh, meditations on there. There are free resources. There are resources to help you take your practice further. I have a membership community where um, we meet regularly. If you want to join that community, I would love to see you in there. So um, without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I'm joined by Vanessa Potter. Vanessa is an author, social entrepreneur, and wellness advocate who lives in London, and she co-founded Park Bathe, a green health initiative in 2021 to provide free accessible forest bathing to the community and has just published a paper on the project, and we'll get to that later. But first, we're going to talk about her remarkable journey. So welcome, Vanessa. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks for having me on. So you had a remarkable journey to where you find yourself today, where you spent 16 years as an award-winning TV producer and then found yourself in completely unfamiliar and scary waters with your health. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, scary waters indeed. Um, I was uh, a TV producer, uh, the usual kind of stressed out, busy. Um, I had two very small children under four. Um, my youngest was only about um, 18 months. And yeah, fate did that thing. It just threw, you know, <laughs> a catastrophic <laughs> episode at me. That's what they call it, a catastrophic episode. And the long and short of it was I... Um, uh, I basically went to bed not feeling particularly well, a um, bit of a headache, and my that my eyes were sore. They just hurt a little bit. And over the course of the next three days, um, that deteriorated, and my 
sight went completely. So within 72 hours, I was completely blind. And my sight didn't kind of just switch off, it slowly dimmed. And that was one of the most frightening parts of this because obviously we were straight into hospital and there was a whole story around that. And I could see my vision going hour by hour. So I'd look at a notice board and when I went into one, we went to many waiting rooms. In one of the waiting rooms, I'd be able to read the main text. By the time I was being moved on, all the punctuation, I couldn't see it, or the smaller letters had disappeared. So I literally watched it go, and it went into a small halo, and it got smaller and smaller and darker and darker, and then literally extinguished. And at the same time as that, I'm being pushed around in a wheelchair, and I've got a very strange kind of numbness going up my fingertips. And because these things happen so fast, the brain can't process. So it was only actually um, on about the second day when someone finally was you know examining trying to because the doctors didn't know what on earth was going on so I was sent from department to department um someone asked me to stand up and I couldn't and and we realized that I had paralysis that had gone all the way up my feet and all the way up my arms um so yeah I was blind and paralyzed in the hospital bed with nobody being able to tell me goodness even what was wrong with me let alone if I would survive we didn't know how far the paralysis would go so it was frightening it was life stopping it was life changing it threw me and my family into complete turmoil um i suppose the extraordinary thing um aside from the fact the rarity of this happening to anybody i had an exceedingly rare condition uh, an autoimmune neurological condition so it was my body was fighting itself um I suppose it was also my producer instinct. I, you know, as a TV producer, I organize things, I document, I'm very organized. I'm the most organized person I know, I think. <laughs> um, and so I started documenting what was happening to me, even though it was, you know, it was this awful situation. I kind of, there was a little bit of um, sort of sanity in there going, I know I'll need to process this sometime, not now. I'm just going to survive now, but I need the data. I need this information so I can backtrack and go through this and make sense of it. So, so I documented everything from about, you know, the first, the first afternoon, everything was documented, which was why I was able to write the book in the way, my first book in the way I could with incredible detail. Um, and mm-hmm. I continued that documentation for the next year um, because it took a long time to recover. <laughs> wow. How long ago was this? So the I went blind in 2012. It's 10 years. Okay. I can't believe it's 10 years now. I think, goodness, how much it's changed my life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, the things that you, I mean, we'll, and we'll get into it. Some of the, the, um, the exploration that you've done and the initiatives that you've been a part of have just been remarkable. Um, so the healing journey, you said it took about a year to get your vision back. Um, I know in the research that I did for you or on you, um, you already had some valuable tools at your disposal on how to deal with with the trauma. And I think one of them was that that instinct that you had to document everything. I mean, that's genius to have that insight at the time to be like, I, I mean, there's so much wisdom there. OK, this is a huge deal. And I, I have to process it, but I can only process like a fraction of it right now. <laughs> and so I can, there are things I can do now to help me, to help my future self, which is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but can you tell us about some of the tools that you used um, for your coping? 
Yeah, well, there was kind of two sides to it. So there's the um, the, the physiological, the the physical side of trying to see again, try and get my my visual system to start operating. But then there's also the mind side to manage my response to this crazy experience that I'd had. So on on the sort of mind side, I'd been lucky because my children were born. My second child, particularly, was born um, using hypnobirthing. So I did have some very basic tools at my disposal. And I'm, I teach a lot of meditation and I talk to a lot of people about this. And I'm very quick to say I was rubbish. <laughs> I was not an expert meditator. I was not, you know, I'd done a bit of self-hypnosis. I dabbled. I was a professional dabbler. I was a TV producer, so I did it reasonably well. And actually with my son, I had an extraordinary experience. And I'm very grateful for that, that that exists in my past because that's, a very strong memory stamp and that those feelings, that sense of agency of being able to control myself and to know I could put myself into a hypnotic state and change the way I felt, which is what I did because essentially my first birth experience was terrible, very traumatic. And I rewired that using hypnosis. Mm. And so I kind of had a learning. I had some knowledge and I had more than that. I had evidence that I could change how I felt about something that felt catastrophic. And so that was kind of one of my first places. So I'd been taught to visualize. So I basically, when I was lying in my hospital bed, I visualized and I went back to the beach that I used to visualize when I had my son, because it's, you know, it's an embedded memory. It's there. It's quite familiar. And I spent about 80% of my time walking up and down, shoving my feet under the coolness of the sand, feeling the sun on my skin. And it wasn't until, again, that whole post-processing, like in the future, talking with psychologists and them going, well, this is, this is so clever because you were actually actively using the visual centers in your brain to see. Because oh, so yeah. we don't see with our eyes. Everyone thinks we see with our eyes and our pupils. That's just the lens. That allows the light in. We see with this bit at the back, the occipital part of our brain. And so I was generating visual content, right, for that part of my brain to keep it working, to keep it juicy and active and alive. And I was doing everything from color, movement, because these are all different brain centers. I, I mean, I didn't sit and go, oh, I'm going to be terribly clever and do this. I, it was so intuitive and instinctive. And again, I'm a big, big fan of listening to those instincts. So, so I did that for about Oh my God. I used to say to people, I'm just going away. And nobody ever asked me where I was going. <laughs> no, I think that was so funny. Um, and that was incredibly successful because it did two things as well. Because again, we often think about mindfulness, about being close, you know, accepting our situation. No. Mindfulness would have been the worst thing for me in that situation. I needed to escape it. I need I needed a sanctuary. And that's what a, a visualized mental sanctuary is. It gives you respite. So I could take my mind somewhere else. I could calm my body down. I did lots of pranayama, lots of uh, very, very basic. I used um, golden thread breath, one breath. That's all I used. And I calmed my body because my body was on high alert. And so it would get to this sort of soothed state. Then I could come back to the room with whatever test whatever piece of news was being given to me, whatever situation I was in then. And so that was the most single powerful thing that had ever happened to me. And, and, that, and so that was one of the things that I you know, wanted to document and write about and tell people about. Um, the other thing I did, because I'm a TV producer and I'm used to detail, is I 
did a load of experiments at home. When I finally got sent home, I was still legally blind. And what that all that means is that I couldn't recognize, I couldn't look after myself very easily without, at that time, support. Of course, blind people live alone all the time, but I wasn't used to it. So I couldn't see the rooms right. I was in. I could see walls, odd patches of light, no color, no very little three dimensions, uh, two dimensions. I, I, everything was um, mono. Um, so, so that was a really difficult time. And so I did these experiments because oh, you get ill. What people come to visit you, what do they say? How are you doing? And yeah. I go, ah, oh. with the paralysis, I could say, all right, you know, I was bloody minded today. I've, I did five steps yesterday. I did three, woohoo, two more yeah. steps with a vision. You, you can't answer that question because the brain is constantly pruning away information and readapting to your environment. So I didn't have a gauge. I had no measure. And that was incredibly frustrating, particularly as the recovery was so slow. And vision doesn't just switch back on. It comes back in layers. And so, oh, interesting. yeah, so and, and, and the scientists that I ended up working with were utterly fascinated by me because um, and they used to call me the human cat because of very, uh, very famous experiments by Hubel and Weasel, two um, Nobel Prize winning um, scientists who did experiments on cats to try and understand our visual system. And here I was without the knowledge of that, replicating a lot of the data in words an experience and they're going oh my god you're a human and weasel cat <laughs> yeah <laughs> so those experiments were fantastic because they gave me a measure they gave me an answer to that question but more than that I was stimulating my visual system and I was actively reconnecting visual centers and bringing my vision back online consciously so again um there were two ways I suppose that I I um I, I interacted oh, with my own recovery Yes. There's just, it, it, I'm floored at how much intuitive guidance you, you had in order. So like one of the things was talking about, um, how you would go away, you know, and that, that like escape, but you, so in a way, you know, we don't want to live our whole life that way because we're, we're, you know, we're escaping and we're not dealing with it, but you had the other side to it where you're like, I know that I need to face this at some point, but I can't face all of it right now. So I'm in a document and with the intention that I'm coming back to it so that I can change how I feel about it. And I can release some of the trauma because you're recognizing in the moment, this is traumatic. And what can I do? Like you're already just sort of leaping into what might be helpful in the future and pulling it into the moment, which is very advanced. And then you're, you're just doing it like, you know what? This sounds like a great idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> you know? It's like, really you know, amazing. You know, after the experience I went and researched, I, and, I, and I didn't use any of that terminology or, or words because I had no real spiritual experience. I, hadn't, I never really actively meditated. As I say, I dabbled. Um, it was very intuitive, but I think a lot of us are intuitive and, and I think mm -hmm. our bodies talk to us all the time. And I find myself saying this a lot. It, we talk loudly, our body whispers, and we've got mm -hmm. to get used as human beings to listen to the whispers. Um, and sometimes because if they're not supported by someone else or someone else advocating it, we kind of don't believe ourselves. And actually, because I was in such an isolated place, locked into your body, literally as I was, I didn't have, there was a moment in the hospital pretty early 
and I write this in my book, I realised, and it's a real clangor moment, I realised no one else was going to heal me. No one. Mm-hmm. They will put me in the most safe place and they'll do their absolute best. There was no question about that. And the caring was amazing, but they weren't going to sort me out. It was going to be me and it was going to be my body. So I had to listen. I realized very quickly, I had to listen to what my body was telling me. So for example, for example, on the physical side, because I had paralysis, I had, um, well, actually I had what's called sensory loss. And that just means okay. that the brain isn't communicating with my foot. So my foot felt like it was wrapped in ice and then someone had bandaged it around with um, gaffer tape. It was quite a specific feeling and it felt very heavy and I couldn't move it. And over time, we would um, stimulate my feet. So my family brought contraband into the hospital. It's quite funny. (laughs) So they were bringing in scourers and and soft wool and cotton wool and a toothbrush. (laughs) And they were doing all these um, textures on my feet. And I had to guess what they were. We were painting my fingernails in multicolors. So I could, again, try and retrain my brain. Like, what is white? What is blue? What is pink? And likewise, what are these textures? And so I did bring a lot of senses back quite quickly. And then I felt this urge that I had to move. Now, my mum's a physio, so there's latent knowledge there, of course. So the physio at the hospital came in and I was doing exercises. And she went, oh, who's giving you those? I went, my body. <laughs> and I'll never forget. Because, of course, I couldn't see her face, but I felt her stop. And then clear her throat and carry on. And, of course, I guess she's not used to that. But but this is what about, I mean about listening. She could have told me to do those exercises, but my body knew it needed to move. I was going to get atrophy. So yeah. I, I just think a lot of us have these intuitions, but we fear maybe, lack of confidence, lack of belief, <laughs> but we need yeah. to listen to them a little more, I think. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I completely agree. And I think that we do have a tendency to hand ourselves over to be like, and the fact that you had that realization early on that like, hey, this healing is coming, it's going to come from me because it's just limited. The external is limited in what they can offer. Um, It just brings to mind in my own world, my daughter has scoliosis. And so I am like always you know, you know, there's always, I always have like one ear out for like, does anybody have experience with that? Or, you know, what, what do we do with it? Um, but I had a vision, like a kind of an energetic experience one night where, um, I, there, I was seeing, like, I was kind of seeing her spine and there was a rotation that was part of, the issue. It was like, cause I kept tuning into it as this curve and like, I do some, I do energetic work and it was like, you know, that's kind of how I'd been addressing everything. But in this vision, it was like, oh, there's a rotation. And, and it was like, you, you have to also work on the, on the rotation from an energetic perspective. And so then I remember like in the vision, I got a little bit too heady with it because I was like, wait a minute, like I kind of my conscious brain realized what I was seeing. And I was like, wait, which way does it need to rotate? And then I was getting confused. Like, am I seeing the way it's rotating on its own or am I seeing the correction? Like, what am I supposed to zero in on? But anyway, yesterday, that was maybe two weeks ago, maybe three. Yesterday, I... um just spent some dedicated time researching some more things about scoliosis. And I hadn't really looked at it from like a research perspective in a while. 
uh, in months, but it just, there were a few different things that I was like, we need to kind of get moving in a certain direction. And I'm watching this webinar and they start talking about how it's it, with this p- particular me- method, you know, it's, it, you know, we think about the spine with the curves, but there's a rotation. And so we also need to work to correct the rotation. And I'm like, my mind is like, you know, like, oh my gosh, in the real world, there's a rotation aspect to scoliosis. And um, so it was just very fascinating. And and you talking about how you were receiving all these intuitive hits, I kind of wanted to just reinforce that because particularly with healthcare, I feel like we tend to hand ourselves over so much and we see the the hospitals for example you know as our saviors and as our guides and our you know the the masters of it like well whatever they say is what I'll do cuz i don't know like i've never had to think about my vision before so you know what do they tell me and i think for all of us you know there is that opportunity to also not you know to not discount what's coming from within us and be our own advocates and so it's a beautiful it's a beautiful lesson in that, an illustration. So one of the things that you have since kind of dived into, um, because with your whole journey, it seems that you then became very interested in like what ha- what's happening within the brain and our brainwave states and so forth. Can you tell us about the brainwave states and the experiment that you did that shows these changes that happen within meditation and it, it illustrates them in a way that's both artistic and scientific. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. I, I got super geeky, not, not to begin with, I'm curious. And, and I'd say curiosity is the other, um, you know, weapon that we have that again, people um, I think often kind of overlook curiosity is, is going to find you the answer. Um, or if not, it's going to send you on the, a journey that will feel much more positive than sitting still and waiting. And so that's what I did. I, I um, after I'd recovered and, and I, when I started to kind of post rationalize and think about everything and go through my diaries, I thought, my goodness, well, for the start, I've got one hell of a story here. Uh, you know, the TV producer in me was the storyteller was very much, uh, you know, awakened to that. But that was I wanted to know the science. And I, and I also wanted to communicate the science, but in a really intuitive way that wasn't just telling and it wasn't just going, here, look, here's a picture of a beach. Now you can imagine, I, I just thought, I'm not going to show pictures of beaches. So mm-hmm. when I'd been in the hospital, I had um, tests where they put electrodes on my brain to actually measure my visual capacity. And I was really intrigued by this because I thought, well, what else can it measure? And so I, I did what I thought anybody would have done, which was to design a massive neuroscience exhibition from my life. <laughs> I just Obviously. genuinely, and I've said this lots of times, I genuinely thought that was normal. Um, it kept me very <laughs> occupied. And it, it was 27 pages of loads of different installations and all these different ways of communicating different facets of my journey um, uh, to the public to let them understand about this incredible thing at the top of their head, their brain and their visual system. So eventually I was put in contact with a neuroscientist at Cambridge University and and, and that kicked off a really amazing collaboration, um, which was called The Beach. And that was launched at the Science Festival. And we basically, we invited members of the public 
to wear an EEG cap. Now, these are the little electrodes that measure your brain activity. And we could measure them in live time and we could transmit that data into a very sophisticated computer system. And what we worked with um, a local London um, art school and Again, I am so fast-tracking through a really complex, geeky process I mean, here. But, but we yeah. converted different brain frequencies into um, music and uh, animated graphics. So we invited the public to come in and they put these headsets on. And most of them, had, I mean, this was, what, 2014, 15. Um, loads of people didn't know about mindfulness or meditation. And so I think the vast majority had never tried it. And we gave them five minutes to meditate. Um, we did a guided track and we did a baseline. And this was the really in, in important part. So the baseline was like, look, close your eyes, think. Think of the shopping list, what you're having for dinner. And then the five minutes was actively, consciously trying with your eyes closed to follow this track. And then we showed them the two sets of data um, afterwards. It's these visual images and these visual images moved. Now, just to explain about the brain states, um, our brain is like this constant orchestra. It's playing all sorts of different notes all the time. So I think in the meditation world, people get a little bit obsessed with, you know, alpha frequencies or theta frequencies. And um, we basically have, in terms of what we did, our experiment, we had four main brain states that we measure. Delta is at the bottom. That's our slow brain waves that are active, the most active when we're sleeping. And then we've got um, theta, which is, I always describe theta as that in-between stage. You know, when you're falling asleep, you suddenly have a great idea. That's kind mm -hmm. of, I mean, again, shortcutting all of this. Alpha is is called um, a, a kind of an awake state. And then we've got beta, which is the very fast um, elevated brain uh, frequencies, which is like uh, when you're running for the bus. So just to really, in a slapdash way, to separate out those brain states. But those brain states all are communicating all the time. They're all active. It's not like one shuts off and another shuts on. But we can see a dominance, and the dominance is the key thing. So we showed these to um, our 120 people who came through our exhibition. They queued down the road, I have to tell you, to do this. We had to wow. extend it. People were so desperate because you could see your mind. I mean, that's amazing. It's so tangible. I mean, it's this part yeah. of yourself. And even the most hardened skeptic or, or, you know, was just so curious. And people saw differences. And it's not what had changed. It's the fact it had changed. So we're all wired individually. So some people might have, and the delta were these beautiful big blue halos. Someone might have like woo, woo on their meditation side. But then on their um, you know, just the baseline, the thinking state, the thinking uh, visual, they might have a lot more of the green um alpha and a bit more and the and the red beta was like this spike. So it's really visual mm. and really easy to see. And they could see different brain states activated when they meditated. So what does that mean? It changes your brain. It switches on different parts. Now that did vary. And, and we used to say to them, well, how did you feel? I mean, the brain and these pictures are great, but how did you feel? And most of them were like astonished, calm. Mm. I've never sat for five minutes in the middle of a day, okay, in a dark room, slightly weird, with headphones on and weird people with wires everywhere, but <laughs> really calm. And I, and I just suddenly became aware of my body. Or They all had different things, but five minutes had a profound effect upon these people. And mm -hmm. so it was a really extraordinary experiment. And it, for me, I was, you know, one side of me might have gone, oh, that's great. It satisfied my curiosity. <laughs> Did the mm -hmm. absolute opposite. It fired it with a thousand more wow. questions. 
And that's how I ended up with my book, where I went back to Tristan Beckenstein, who is the the, the main scientist I worked with. And I said, oh, look, Tristan. Um, and he's great. He's South American. He's quirky and a musician. And he's really open to arts collaborations. And I said, I've got another idea. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, come on, let's hear it. <clears throat> and that was to take what we'd learned during this exhibition, which was, in essence, that we can change our brain state by our how we think and use our mind, right? But I was, I'd started to learn about transcendental meditation and somebody had asked me about loving kindness. And I was like, I fobbed the question. I went, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I didn't know anything. <laughs> and so I was being asked these questions and I said to him, I want to go find out. And I found out all about these different ways to use your mind. Is it being in the present? Is it visualizing? Um, are we using something that's repetitious? You know, what happens in the brain if we do that? And so mm -hmm. that's, that's what sparked then another three-year experiment where I wore an EEG headset every day, pretty much every day. And I worked my way through 12 different techniques and recorded everything and, and wrote a book about it. And there's a paper hopefully coming out on that as well. Wow. Well, what are the names of your books? So the first book's called Patient H69. That was my hospital number. Um, the story of my second sight. And this is my second book, um, Finding My Right Mind. One woman's experiment put meditation to the test, which is, it kind of says on the front cover what I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a roadmap. It's a roadmap right. to meditation. That's beautiful. That's amazing. And you're you're currently focusing on forest bathing, like I mentioned in the introduction. So can you tell us about this this initiative? Yeah, this is so exciting. This has been my 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 last year and a half actually. Um, so forest bathing is this extraordinary, uh, very simple technique that I came across, and was fascinated to embark upon something a bit more research-based. So I, I collaborated with Kirsten McEwen, who is a researcher at Derby University. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she and I set up a project called Park Bathe because forest bathing traditionally is normally three hours in an ancient woodlands. And that's not accessible if you live in cities, if you work. It's, it's a lovely idea. And, it's, and, and we know from the research it has wonderful um, physical and mental health benefits. Um, but who can do it's that? It's a big practice in Japan. Is that right? Exactly right. Yeah. It's called Shinrin-yoku yeah. and the translation is forest bathing, which basically means walking in and, and bathing in the, the natural forest. Um, and it's very simple. It's using the five senses in a very kind of conscious way and it's slow and it's in silence. And, it, and I say it to lots of people and they kind of go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a walk in the park. It's not. It's so different. So we wanted to um, explore this and put it into a, a green space setting, a, a park, a city park, and ask the question, would forest bathing that's normally done in this very quiet, you know, you know, this ancient woodland with no one around for three hours, could we take the juicy parts of that and put it into a, a public park in an hour and have it as a mental health intervention, as an accessible resource? That was our question. We've since taken nearly 300 people on park bathe walks in Crystal Palace Park. And I <laughs> I always have to be careful with scientific results. You, you know, you can't get too excitable about them because, you know, but even Kirsten, who is a proper, proper scientist, goes, no, we absolutely can say it works because <laughs> it does. Our results were, were incredible. We had a nearly a 40% reduction in anxiety. 
We had a 51% reduction in, you know, rumination, overthinking. People pretty much across the board walk away feeling calm, centered, grounded. I mean, most people don't want to talk. Well, some people want to chat a lot at the end. Some people just want to go and sit under a tree. For some people, it's a very emotional experience. We get a lot of tears. Um, so it's been an absolute privilege to be part of this project. And in fact, we're now wow. applying for new funding to extend it. Mm, wow, that's beautiful. What an amazing service to to society, especially right now when it's like, what can we do to kind of get some peace and some calmness and some grounding and some, some you know, take the take the edge off in a healthy way. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, because it is accessible. And and one of the things that we teach is is not having there's a little bit of um hierarchy and snobbery around spirituality sometimes I find. And we are very very keen to say to people, look it's your life. You can do this. You can share this with your family. You don't need to be an expert to walk in nature. We've taught you some basic tools. Come back a few times, come and do a few sessions so you know you really get it. Um, we've got a guided track if you need reminding, but go and do this. Have your own agency and and adapt this for your life. And so we get wonderful stories of runners who do a 40-minute run and the last warm cool down is forest bathing. Unplugged, mm. they walk through the forested part of the park and it transforms their exercise routine. We've one lady told me the other day she came back on a walk. And um, she's got a tiny little, like a green quad next to her office. And she was going down and doing little forest bathing sessions in this session when she was very stressed at work to the point where, and this was a year later after she went on her first walk, she was telling me, she says, now her colleagues go, go on, off you go, go and do that thing you do. Because uh, it, <laughs> it had such a, you know, a noticeable difference because it's absolutely my go-to. It's changed my life. And when I That's hear things like that, that, I'm so pleased, not just that she that we did part bathe, but that she found something and she owns that. Yeah. That's hers. And she doesn't need yeah. anybody else in the world to do that yeah. for her. It's hers. I love that. Yeah, that's glorious. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa. How can people find out more about you? Okay. You can find me on my website, which is vanessapotter.com. And that's Potter as in Harry Potter, <laughs> just Vanessa Potter. <laughs> Um, I'm also uh, on Instagram and Facebook as Vanessa Potter Writes. And I'm still on Twitter under my old first book, which is at Patient H69. Okay, wonderful. Well, this has been such a joy. Thank you for all of the, the work that you're doing to use this experience that you've had to unlock higher levels of consciousness for other people and, and uh, greater, greater experiences of their own whole self. It's really beautiful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love for you to do me one quick favor, which is to think of one person who would benefit from hearing this content. Let them know you're thinking of them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.